On June 20, 2002, the United States Supreme Court Justice John Paul Stevens wrote the majority opinion that death is not a suitable punishment for the mentally retarded criminal. You're listening to ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, your host, and with me today is Dr. Robert Heilbrunner. Dr. Heilbrunner is an assistant clinical professor of psychology and behavioral sciences at Northwestern University School of Medicine in Chicago, Illinois. He specializes in forensic neuropsychology, is a member of the board of directors of the American Academy of Neuropsychology, and chairs its practice guidelines working group. He is the consulting neuropsychologist to the Chicago Blackhawks hockey team. Today we are discussing the role of the forensic neuropsychologist in civil and criminal litigation. Welcome, Dr. Heilbrunner. I'm glad to have you with us today at the Clinician's Roundtable. Thank you very much for inviting me. I guess I'm getting into forensics. First, I was a big fan of Quincy, medical examiner. My daughter-in-law is the first forensic accountant I ever met, and I have a lot of accountants in my family. Now I have the pleasure of speaking with a forensic neuropsychologist. Can you give us a capsule summary of what you do? Well, my day-to-day activities are quite varied. First and foremost, I'm a clinical neuropsychologist where I see patients who are referred to me by physicians such as neurologists or neurosurgeons to assess the individual's brain functioning uh, in terms of the impact any alleged brain dysfunction may have on memory or uh, reasoning skills, other kinds of things that the brain's responsible for. Additionally, I have a a specialty area in uh, forensic neuropsychology, which leads me to get involved in litigation, civil litigation, which is cases of personal injury, as well as medical malpractice cases, and additionally, criminal litigation, where I may be asked to examine a murder defendant uh, and to answer questions as to whether or not their, their brain dysfunction played a role in their perpetrating the the crime uh, at issue. Let me take you back a few years, especially since you brought up crime at issue. Do you remember Brian Nelson? Yes, I do. Can you tell us about Brian and perhaps use this as a stepping off point for a discussion of work of a forensic neuropsychologist? As I recall, Mr. Nelson was an individual who was charged with murder And in his history, there was clear evidence to me as a neuropsychologist, as well as to those who knew him, of him having suffered a significant change in personality and temperament as a result of a motor vehicle accident that included a significant head injury. And there was a question as to whether or not those changes in personality and temperament, his capacity to control his emotions and his aggressive impulses, etc., was a factor involved in him committing the act and whether or not it could be looked upon as, as what we call as mitigating evidence. And I was retained by his attorney to do an examination, and as a result of my um, exam, indeed found that there was evidence of significant brain injury that, in my opinion, had significance to the legal issue at hand. Your involvement, how does that differ from other forensic medical experts? Well, again, as a neuropsychologist, what we do is we study the brain and how an injury to the brain causes changes in the person's thinking skills, in their behavior, and in their uh, emotional functioning. So the neuropsychologist is really very uniquely qualified to objectively address those issues through various reliable and valid measures that have been developed over time in my field, as well as through a comprehensive interview of the defendant and through a review of uh, historical information, including medical records and academic records and other sources of information. 
You mentioned you have a clinical neuropsychological practice as well as your forensic one. Is there a difference in your approach to the forensic evaluation versus the neuropsychological evaluation of one of your clinical patients? At present, even though I may refer to myself as doing forensic neuropsychology, there really is no specific uh, subspecialty that has specific standards or credentialing. So forensic neuropsychology is, is a subspecialty area that clinical psychologists such as myself are engaged in. We really follow and adhere to the principles and guidelines for clinical neuropsychology as, as a field. But to answer your question more specifically, when we're doing a forensic exam, uh, one of the things that we really want to look at, perhaps even more so than a clinical exam, is the whole role of effort and whether the person is really trying to appear forthright and honest or whether they're exaggerating their claims either for the purpose of financial enumeration or in criminal cases, perhaps as a way to delay their trial or, or to get off by reason of insanity. So even more than in a clinical realm, we really arm ourselves in the forensic arena with different measures to look at, at effort. But beyond that, when I'm seeing a criminal defendant, the examination I do may take anywhere from a day and a half to two days. And this is very different from an examination I may do for an elderly adult who is complaining of memory problems and is worried about having a dementia, where I may see him or her perhaps for an hour, hour and a half of testing. So in the forensic realm, it's much more comprehensive than typically in a clinical uh, examination. How do you determine if a person is competent to stand trial? I would assume that's one of your functions as a forensic neuropsychologist. Well, honestly speaking, that's not something that I do. However, I, I do know other neuropsychologists that feel comfortable doing that. For that purpose, I really refer the attorney to more of a forensic or clinical psychologist because the whole area of competency both to stand trial or competency to confess, that's a real specific specialty area that requires very specialized training and the use of specific instruments that I myself don't do. And knowing my boundaries and limits as I do and practicing ethically, I defer to somebody else. But as I said before, there are other psychologists and neuropsychologists that do that. And there are various instruments that have been designed for that purpose to really get a sense of whether the person understands the legal proceedings, can interact with their attorney in a knowledgeable way, and those kinds of things that should be investigated. I'd like to pause for a moment to welcome those who may have just joined us at the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, and I'm speaking with Dr. Robert Heilbrunner, a clinical as well as forensic neuropsychologist. We are discussing the role of the neuropsychologist in criminal and civil legal proceedings. So when you said competency is not an area you work with, are you involved at all with the sentencing aspects or not that area either? In the criminal realm, I would have to say that that's the area that I've been most involved in over the past 10 years. More specifically, sentencing in, in death penalty cases. As the uh, listeners may or may not know, in, in a death penalty or capital case, there are two phases. First, there's the guilt and innocence phase, i.e., to determine whether the defendant actually murdered somebody. And then secondly, the sentencing phase. And in the sentencing phase, the defense presents mitigating factors, which basically can be anything from the individual's life history as a way to help the jury to understand the person where he, mostly he came from and to really get a sense of the person's life story. The prosecution presents different aggravating factors that can be used to say, you know, these are the factors involved that should lead the jury to give a sentence of death. So 
I've been involved most often in, in the mitigation phase, more specifically to look at the role of possible brain dysfunction uh, with the defendant. If there's been a history of head trauma in their life, exposure to toxic substances, history of learning disability or attention deficit disorder, this information is used in context with a lot of other risk factors, perhaps not having a father around or being abused as a child, having uh, limited access to available academic resources, juvenile delinquency, a whole host of life risk factors that are presented in, in total to the jury to help them to understand the defendant and then perhaps to allow them to reach a different determination than death. Do you find the juries are receptive to your evaluations? I like to think that they are. I don't believe that just the neuropsychological information alone would lead the jury to decide not to render a uh, determination of a death sentence. As I said, it's used in the context of uh, a lot of other information. However, I will say there is one case that comes to mind out in Seattle that I was retained where the individual was examined by me and his IQ was very close to the level of mental retardation. That factor alone was enough to convince the prosecution to not seek the death penalty because in Seattle, as in many other states throughout our country, it's unconstitutional to execute the mentally retarded. So because of that score from my examination, that by itself was enough to spare the individual's life. Uh, in fact, I, I wrote that case up as a chapter in a book, which will be coming out shortly. But that's an example of where the neuropsychological test was very critical in terms of whether the individual was sentenced to life, which he was, versus put to death. Can you give us the title of the book for those who are interested in exploring the subject in more depth? It's a uh, text that will be coming out shortly, edited by Drs. Joel Morgan and Jerry Sweet, and I believe it's published by Oxford University Press. And I can't recall the title specifically, but it has to do with various case studies and, and malingering. And the reason why this case was being used in that particular book is because the prosecution in that case was alleging that the defendant was malingering his mental retardation, and then that would not be adequate for them not to pursue the death penalty. But through my examination and testimony, it was quite clear to me that he was not malingering, and he really had a level of intellectual functioning that approached mentally retarded, which, again, as I said before, the prosecution took into consideration and decided not to pursue a death sentence. How often does amnesia play into your evaluation? I'm sure a lot of people probably claim, oh, I just don't remember what I did. It does happen. Certainly in criminal cases, it's something that I look at, uh, wh whether the person has recall for the criminal act, whether it's real or whether the person's feigning or exaggerating that. And in the civil work that I do, cases of personal injury, most often where an individual's in a, a car or some other kind of accident, and may have sustained a blow to the head that may or may not produce a loss of consciousness or alteration of consciousness and amnesia, you know, we look at that very critically because the person may or may not remember the events surrounding the accident, or they may remember everything, but later on are claiming that they don't remember anything, but that's inconsistent with what the records have shown from the acute uh, medical personnel. So that whole role of amnesia is relevant in both criminal as well as civil work. What's the neuropsychologist's nightmare? What keeps you up at night? 
You know, I sleep very soundly, I have to say, uh, for, for the work that I do, because I practice ethically and responsibly, and I'm very conservative in my opinions and approach. But, you know, when you asked that question, one of my thoughts was, you know, quote unquote, letting a malingerer slip by, i.e., where I had uh, opined that somebody's symptoms are very real and a result of the injury. And lo and behold, later on, you know, we see them running off with the money that they make from the lawsuit and clearly were not injured. But I never know whether that happens or not because I, I don't follow these people up. But I appreciate you being so honest with us. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to thank Dr. Robert Heilbrunner for being my guest today. We've been discussing the role of the forensic neuropsychologist in civil and criminal proceedings. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. For those of you who would like to learn more and earn extra credit, I highly recommend the book Conviction by Richard North Patterson. For comments and questions, please send your email to xm at reachmd.com or visit us at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening. I wish you good day and good health.